This is episode 146 of the Stem Cell Podcast. CRISPR-based modeling of congenital heart disease in patient IPSCs with Dr. Arun Sharma. Hey everybody, I'm Daylon James, host of The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Before we get into today's show, we want to thank everyone who took the time to find and talk to us at this year's ISSCR annual meeting. We had a great time talking to researchers from all over the world about their stem cell research, and we plan to share those conversations with you. Stay tuned for special ISSCR episodes that will be released off week of our regular schedule. We also want to give a special shout out to Oriana Genelette at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Genetics, who was our ISSCR contest winner and got to take home a pretty sweet basket of stem cell podcast swag. Getting back to today, we have Dr. Arun Sharma, who's just moved to Cedar sinai from Harvard Medical School. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on the applications of IPSCs and CRISPR technology for studying cardiovascular biology. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, ladies and gentlemen, do you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes? If you do, you should use stem cells, stem diff cardiomyocyte media, and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells. And the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiff dash cardio. And you could get out there, get your cardiomyocytes beaten. Come on. You know you want to hear that. Moving on to the roundup. You know, we're starting in the heart. Because we just talked about the heart. We're going to be talking about the heart with Arun. We talked on the heart last episode with James Hudson. So let's start with a shot to the heart, shall we? This is a bit of a shot to the heart. You know, we've talked about the controversy surrounding the existence of an adult CPC, cardiac progenitor cell. That's been debunked very thoroughly. We talked about that with Dr. Hudson and Bursa, you know, totally scanned the world on that one. But we're making a comeback on that. You know, the, the form in which we thought we would make that big comeback was the neonate, you know. There's this phenomenon of neonatal mammalian cardio, cardiac regeneration that has been documented. And a lot of people are looking there for, like, what are the molecular underpinnings of that? Can we exploit that? Can we lever that and endow the adult heart with the same capacity, save millions of lives? But uh, it's controversial, you know, you know. A little background, of course, we've talked about this, but I'm just going to review again. Heart disease, heart attack kills millions. It's the biggest killer, of course. And the real key is the lack of regeneration. You have a kind of fibrogenic response instead of a regenerative response. You're making a lot of these myofibroblasts, they infiltrate, and they put down a lot of ECM, and then they die. All right, They just leave this dead scar. It's dead weight. It leads to heart failure ultimately and this is the main obstacle in treating cardiovascular disease and injury is that it doesn't injure it doesn't repair itself right and of course we've long known and we've unset the dogma showing that there is a little bit of cardiac turnover in the adult heart but you know pretty much nada except in the neonate right in about the first week post uh, birth in the mouse at least and there's a lot of evidence in cardiac surgery in humans to show that neonates there's a lot more plasticity, a lot more capacity for recovery, 
And there's been a lot of studies showing that neonatal mouse heart can fully regenerate. A lot of studies, a lot of follow-ups. But there's arguments surrounding this capacity that have emerged recently. A bunch of papers, Anderson et al., a couple, and Brian et al., Kotikoff et al., Paul Zotzi et al., had a couple. They show the converse. They show that neonatal mouse, it lacks the capacity to regenerate following either apical resection or cryo injury. So there's controversy. You know, it's one of these questions, again, come out with a big result. Some other people say no. Some other people say yes. You're going back and forth. We need to settle this in the scientific form. And that's what Chen Lin Kai, who's from Indiana University, is trying to do here. You know, he's trying to set, settle, settle this once and for all. Um, and, you know, part the basis in the thinking of this neonatal cardiac regeneration that it was somehow... Um, related to a, a population of cardiac stem cells and epicardial cells, you know, epicardial progenitor stem cells in, in the specific region of the heart, the epicardium, which is the outer lining of the heart, just outside of, you know, the muscle part. And there's these multipotent progenitor cells in the epicardium during embryonic development that contribute to a lot of the bulk of the heart, and it contributes to multiple cell types, including, including the cardiomyocyte and the endothelium. But in mice, it's not really fully known whether the, these epicardial cells postnatally in this neonatal phase, if they differentiate into all these cardiac lineages and vascular lineages and mediate the repair in this neonatal context, right? So that's unknown. What are the cells that mediate neonatal repair, if there is neonatal repair at all? Um, or to what degree do these cells mediate it? And to what degree is there repair? That's the question that they went after, and they did it using a kind of alternate to this, the classic. There's this Wilms tumor Cree model that's been used a lot to identify the epicardial cells and do the lineage tracing. Here, uh, Chen Lenkai and their, his people over there, they used a different um, inducible Cree, which is a TBX18 Cree that um, labels epicardial cells specifically. Uh, and so using this mouse they were able to get a different resolution, a better resolution is their argument for the epicardial diaspora there. And they show that the that newly formed coronary vessels and a limited number of cardiomyocytes um, in the context of neonatal cardiac injury can be direct, they come from the TBX18 lineage. Okay, but then they did a couple other reporters, the smooth muscle one and the NFATC one that labels cardiac endothelium showed that that the this, this smooth muscle, those new smooth muscle and endothelial cells, that they didn't actually come from epicardial progenitor in the neonatal post-injury you know, thing, that they actually came from pre-existing coronary vessels that were in the neonatal heart. Okay, And more than that, they show that although the epicardial cells are, are multipotent in embryo, embryogenesis, and that's been well-defined, that embryo cardiogenesis in, in in during fetal stages is you know there's a lot of epicardial contribution there but the the after birth the contribution to heart repair through you know a conversion either the stem or progenitor cells within that population is minimal minimal okay so it seems like a lot of the recovery of the heart um well when there is recovery of the heart which i think uh chen lang might debate to begin with. He say there's a minimal recovery period, but when there is recovery, it's not in fact derived from epicardial cells becoming cardiomyocytes and new vessels within the heart, but it's from pre-existing vessels and a very small degree.
of commitment of these epicardial progenitor cells. So there's another, um, you know, something that just got dropped like a rock into the fields. A lot of people are going to be waking up to a full pack of Tums because, you know, this type of controversy, it doesn't stop there. There's going to be a response. Just you wait. Chen Lin Kai's got a target on his back right now, but, you know, that's the name of the game. Uh, I respect the man for coming with a, a, a uh, unexpected result. All right, next. We're going into, you know, if you can't get the heart to regenerate on its own, we got to go into the cell-based therapies, right? That's the idea. We love regenerative therapies that are based in cells, but it's a lot of challenges facing that. You know, I learned a lot on the ISSCR on both sides of that. I went in there, my cynical self, I came out of there with my eyes wide and my jaw hanging loose. But still, there's some challenges to applying cell-based therapies in the clinical context. And, you know, one of those challenges is just getting the cells to form the tissue that you want, right? We are so busy talking about organoids of late that we forget that the majority of cell culture takes place in this two-dimensional monolayer context, right, that's totally non-physiological. Although, that said, if you get these geometrically confined uh, stem, pluripotent stem cell colonies and, and just dump reagents on top of them, these morphogens that they see in physiology, they'll, they'll generate patterns, right? Like let's say you dump BMP4, WINT3A, activin A, these are the primary morphogens early on in development. Um, in morphogenesis, you'll, you'll generate a pattern, but it's like a radial pattern, a radial symmetric pattern in which the different cell types will be distributed in, you know, according to a pattern that makes sense if we were all radially symmetrical, but we're not, right? We got the AP, we got the DV, we got all kinds of axes in us. And, you know, the, the this is radial symmetry that we see in a dish. That's not the physiological reality, right? So th- the problem there, obviously, is that when we're going in a dish, we have this uniform application of these morphogens, whereas in vivo... There's, there's these little nodes, right? There's like the organizer, for example. We just talked about a, a story from Lorenz where he put a little bead of a sonic hedgehog in an AEB to create a signaling center. And that's the idea. In vivo, there's signaling centers, right? Um, and the, you know, we all know that these localized signaling centers where the morphogen gradients come from and then are diluted as you move away from them, we know that that's vital. That's vitally important into creating that primary axis and pattern. But of course, we also know that our PSC culture systems, they're limited in our ability to explore that type of morphogen signaling, right? So what, what do they do? Matthias Lutof over in Switzerland, Lausanne, they, uh, they to overcome this problem with patterning, they, uh, they, they developed this microfluidic approach, okay? And this microfluidic approach exposes the PSCs, in this case human pluripotent stem cell colonies, to a, a spatiotemporally controlled morphogen gradient that is generated from artificial signaling centers. Um, in this case, they focused on mainly on bone morphogenic protein when they had the localized source of BMP4, uh, the, the human colonies, they, they reproducibly broke away from this radial symmetry that you see in the dish to produce a distinct axially arranged uh, distribution of 
domains. So distinct domains that were arranged in a kind of axis. Um, and moreover, if you did, if you reinforce this by using a counteracting source of the BMP antagonist noggin, you could enhance the spatial control of the fate patterning. Okay, so you could really define the foci and, and patterning and and endow these human pluripotent stem cell colonies with the kind of axis and organizing function um, using this microfluidic device. And fundamentally, I think this story it shows how the the the, that you can manipulate these factors. Not only that, actually, they, they show that if you increase the concentration also, or if you change the density of the cells, that can also affect the response of the cells and the patterning of the cells. So it's like, it, I think they're creating a, a landscape where you can tweak the system and have different inputs in the microfluidics to generate some kind of overarching pattern. And I have to say, coming from the ISSCR, I think that a major focus of all the groups there is how we can generate something that's more complicated than these simple organoids. We have the, this primary organoid that is taken over the field, and, and next we're moving into a kind of compound organoid. I think that's the next stage. And implicit in that is being able to create signaling centers. So this is a big step forward out of Switzerland. I'm sure they will distribute it throughout the world freely as they are uh, famously a neutral country that is just invested in the furthering of the goodness of mankind. Matthias Lutov, kudos to you for your humanitarian endeavors. I am very pleased to have disseminated that information to the world. Moving on into a single cell seek story. This one in the brain, I thought this was really cool. It's kind of building on a lot of stories that we've seen lately talking about, is there a new neurogenesis in the brain? Is there not controversy there? What's the, where is it? And to what degree? And how is it negatively affected? We're all about the brain and, and how we're getting, you know, we're in decline as, as we get older. And that's, you know, that's a hallmark. As you get old, all your tissues decline. But the, the adult subventricular zone in the brain, it's a great example of that. It's a great model system for studying that decline because it's a neurogenic niche where you have a lot of new cell growth, right? Well, maybe not a lot, depends on the person, but significant cell growth throughout adulthood. Um, but not only that, you know, it declines as, as you, get, you get a functional decline in that neurogenic niche through aging. Also, the niche is, is composed of many cell types, right? It has the astrocytes, it has the neural stem cells, um, and at variable stages, it has endothelial cells, the microglia, it has it all, right? So it's a, it's a great uh, platform uh, from which to, to try and investigate the, the whole niche and how the multiple cell types within a niche can contribute to that decline of stem cell function or just generally tissue function, right? So what do they do? You, you could look at the system, and if you want to throw single cell seek at it, look at the neural stem cells. Yeah, we've, we've reported on some papers from that, sure. But, and that's been done, yeah. You look at young and old, and you say the old mice versus the young mice, they have this factor, they don't have this factor, and maybe that's contributing. But this is very focused on the, the neural cells themselves, um, but an understanding of the whole niche, the whole neurogenic niche, you know, in young and old has not been done. So... Uh, Anne Brunette, who's from Stanford University, she said, well, if nobody's going to do it, then I'm going to do it. All right? I guess it's my problem now, she says. 
and takes it on. In this case, she did uh, single cell RNA-seq on the whole SVZ, all right? So the whole sump ventricular zone, take it out of the mouse, put it in a dish, chop it up, and then single cell seek that jammy. You got three young mice, three months old, three old mice, which were approaching 30 years old. That's quite old for mouse cells. Probably fully demented at this point. And then they did, you know, three old, three young, three independent experiments. This led to 14,685 single cell transcriptomes. Okay? It's, it's, it sounds like a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, almost 15,000, although I guess that's de rigueur nowadays. I don't even know why they put the numbers in the title anymore, but a lot, all right? Thousands and thousands of transcriptomes, and they revealed that there was, of course, a decrease in activated neural stem cells. We expected that. There were changes in the endothelial cells and microglia. Hmm, that's interesting. And there's an infiltration of T cells in the old neurogenic niches. T cells. All right? These T cells are infiltrating into these old brains and clonally expanding. All right? So that kind of suggests that, you know, and they're different from the ones circulating in the blood, right? And that old ragged blood, they got clonally expanded T cells in these mice brains, in the old mouse brains. And that suggests that they're like kind of reacting to specific antigens, okay? They also, the T cells in these old brains are expressing a ton of interferon gamma, all right? And you should know that also the subset of neural stem cells that has a high interferon response shows decreased proliferation in vivo, okay? So it seems like high interferon gamma from the T cells suppressing proliferation of the neural stem cells. Um, and this is recapitulated, these T cells specifically were able to inhibit when you added them to neural stem cell co-cultures in vitro and also in vivo. Um, and this is thought to be biased to this secretion of interferon gamma. So all in all, the study shows that there's an interaction between the T cells and neural stem cells that it's going on in old brains, it's absent in young brains. All right, so it brings another target out there in our aging brains, something else that we can try and, and target to impede this inexorable decline. Um, you know, I'm optimistic, but it seems like we have to throw the whole kitchen sink into our brains in order to make, make a dent here. It's, if it's not the T cells, it's the radioactive oxygen species, there's all kinds of things going on in our aging brains that are, that are you know, it's a problem. It's a problem, and, uh, you know, let's hope we can solve it, and Brunette. All right, now, to finish... I wanted to talk about some of these perspectives. I got two perspectives here, and I know, I know, we don't typically talk about perspective here, but this is a critical, critical perspective I think that's needed. I want everybody to take a look. Just came back from the ISSCR where pretty much, you know, we're in prime time, guys. The, all these treatments are headed to the clinic. It was a lot of unpublished data that they emphasized at, at, at the meeting this year, and much of that unpublished data was right on the cusp of clinical translation. The things that investigators are making in organoids, the functional endpoints that we're reaching with entirely pluripotent, human pluripotent stem cell derived um, tissues and organs, organoids, um, it's, you know, bananas. So we need to now think about how we're going to design this translational thing without, you know, blowing it frankly. I'm afraid that we're going to blow it because scientists were so, you know, we're in really intent on getting it done. We're in this race, but 
maybe we need to to put some restraints on so that we do it right. Okay, so yes, there's a lot of urgency, as I said. Everybody's racing to get these uh, stem cell-based interventions, we're calling it, SCBIs into practice. This is a perspective from Jonathan Kimmelman, who's at McGill. And the, the title is Ethical Development of Stem Cell-Based Interventions. The bottom line being like, yeah, we know we all want to do it. Now we got to do it carefully. Okay, so bear in mind, Stem cell-based interventions have been in the field since the 50s, right? And this was all the, the hematopoietic stem cell transplant, bone marrow transplant, right? We talked for an hour with Irv about that at the meeting. We got that on tape. You should tune in. some point in the summer, we're going to drop that. But he gave us some, in, some insights into how this has been going on forever, and now we're in this new world with the pluripotent stem cell-derived, IPS-derived products, and we're thinking, oh, yeah, let's apply it, because it was relatively easy with the blood. But the problem and the difference is that that blood was coming out of those people going into people, right? So as well established, the challenge is facing the application of these new pluripotent stem cell-derived interven- interventions are myriad, right? And we really got to not blow it. Translation of these therapies, it's, it's a distinctive cluster of social and scientific challenges facing them, okay? And, and I, I thought this was a great and very incisive way of addressing the issue uh, Jonathan Kimmelman and Amanda McPherson did here. They said that the problem here is if you you apply these prematurely, one, you're going to divert resources from more promising treatment options that are more practical. Two, you betray the confidence of all these people who have bought in and are really the impetus and are accelerating the research because of their interest. I think they, that we could betray their confidence if we do something that's a little premature and has a bad outcome. And, you know, ultimately, this is going to undermine m- meaningful progress, right? So what they do in this perspective is they advocate for policies and practices for negotiating several common and difficult ethical and policy challenges in the clinical translation of these interventions. All right? There's three basic premises that I just want to address, and then you could read the rest of the article. For, for the details. Three basic premises I think are really important. One, that the value of these stem cell-based interventions and in research and development into them, it depends on the ability of the healthcare system to absorb the cost, okay? So like if we're developing therapies, ultimately they have to be practical on an ec- economic level. You know, the idea of maybe making a new drug for every individual patient, who knows if that's going to be financially viable, right? So that's a major challenge we need to think about. Two, the value of any one line of development, it can't be assessed in isolation, right? We've got to measure the potential of these applications in the context of the other substantive approaches, okay? There may be other approaches that might be as good or better that could substitute for those, right? So we need to measure the value of these things, not in a silo, like, oh, cell, you know, dopaminergic neurons from pluripotent stem cells is the only means of addressing the disease. It's not. It's not. There's other ways, and it may be the best way, but we have to consider it in the context of the other. Third, and finally, the efforts that are going to bring any of these major advances into the clinic are going to take sustained effort over the course of decades, okay? And the complexity of these efforts nowadays, they're not, you know, isolated ivory tower type research. They demand collaboration amongst not only all the different, you know, 
it's multidisciplinary research, et cetera, but all the other stakeholders too, including the public, including industry, including the funding apparatus, and including the regulatory apparatus, namely the government. We need to get everybody together in a methodical, transparent, and measured approach to all these challenges. And I really invite you guys to, to read that yourself because you know, you're so busy looking at the science, hearing about the science. I think it's important now to try and think about how we're gonna design these trials in a way that, that makes sense and that is gonna inspire confidence and get results, okay? And to, to end, I'm gonna follow up on that because we talked to Roger Barker also, um, you know, famously from University of Cambridge who's initiated a lot of the early trials of fetal cell grafts for Parkinson's disease. We talked to him at the ISSCR this year because he was the chair of the Clinical Translation Committee and he, he, I mean, it was a great chat. We talked to him for about 20 minutes. You could catch that on one of these off-week episodes. I'm sure we'll post that this summer, too, so listen up. But here, he had a perspective in nature medicine that um, it's called Designing Stem Cell-Based Dopamine Cell Replacement Trials for Parkinson's Disease, okay? And this is Roger Barker and the Trans-Euro Consortium. And this is very specific to Parkinson's disease, but this is one of the early trials that's going into play because there's been, you know, 30 years of cell replacement strategy that's been applied for Parkinson's disease. People don't really know or talk about it, but 30 years they've been doing this. So this is something that maybe has matured a bit and could be a really useful template for how to design uh, future studies. And this current study that was done by the TransEuro is a great example. Okay, so just to get into that briefly, you know, we know that, that the, the deal with Parkinson's disease, right? There's this uh, pathology in the brain, the central nervous system that leads to the, the um, you know, these ad, the, this, the pathology that everyone's aware of and the motor pathology, the motor abnormalities, right? Um, and it's like, a, it's, it's systemic, you know, that there's, there's, there's pathology that that's spans the entire... Uh, central nervous system, even though you see it with the rigidity and the, and the dyskinesia, right? Um, and the, a lot of people talk about cell therapy for Parkinson's, but the, the, those m core deficits, the bradykinesia, I should call it, not dyskinesia, and the rigidity, they're responsive to therapies that are not cell-based, other dopaminergic replacement therapies um, with drugs, essentially, and patients can do really well with those when treated in the early stage of disease. But when you take these drugs, they can they have problems, okay, both in the short and the long term. Um, in the short term, there's the off-target effects that can lead to neuropsychiatric or autonomic problems like the dyskinesia, right, because you're having stimulation of dopaminergic receptors kind of off-target. Um, and so because of that off-target effect that you can get in the short and long term, um, or the chronic complications of chronic use of these drugs, there's been a lot of interest in the targeted use, you know, cell therapy. That's why cell therapy is so great. You could selectively just target this one region. In the case of Parkinson's, it's in the caudate patamen, right? If you could get the dopaminergic neurons to go in there and then project to the striatum or um, to the, I don't know, substantia nigra, is that it? Talk to somebody who knows. Roger Barker, he, I apologize for my ignorance, but it goes somewhere. They project, right? So if you have that targeted approach, boom, it's a cell-based therapy that pretty much repairs the system, right? But, you know, the, the cell therapies are 
they have their own challenges, right? And famously, I think now, maybe infamously, there was an NIH-funded trial um, in the U.S. that was, it was using fetal cell graft, okay, dopaminergic uh, neurons in, in that were present in fetal cell grafts from aborted fetus, um, and that showed no benefit in patients who received the grafts versus those who were sham. And, and there was, I mean, to the negative, there was a lot of patients, well, not a lot, but a significant number who developed side effects in the form of this graft-induced dyskinesia. So the graft itself seemed to be causing problems, and that was, the optics of that were awful. And, you know, it kind of, I think, put a halt on the idea of fetal cell grafting. But then there were other studies that came out that showed that it was relatively effective, okay, and and that, that, that maybe the earlier studies were using impure populations or the site of graft or the stage of injury. So there was all these discussions that followed from that. And the basis discussions and a lot of the re- revisiting the data, there was, a, the, the, um, there was identification of a lot of factors that explain the differences in, in patients that could have an outcome, a positive outcome, versus the ones who had this graft-induced dyskinesia, and essentially it was that patients at earlier stages of disease with no significant ventral striatal dopaminergic denervation and negligible dyskinesia, that those were the patients that were the, would benefit the most from using these fetal grafts. Okay, so that, that was the, the conclusion of this discussion, and on the basis of that, they formed, this group formed something called TransEuro which is a European-funded trial in Europe uh, using uh, fetal cell graft, so reinvigorating this fetal cell graft stuff. And at the time, it should be noted that they used fetal cell graft in this case because there weren't dopaminergic cells from pluripotent stem cells at the time. They hadn't been derived. This was, you know, in 2011 or so. So they went with the fetal cell graft, which was the best possible material at the, at the time, and the study had two arms. It was an observational study just looking at the history of uh, and progression of younger onset early stage Parkinson's disease. So they had more than 100 patients in that group. Well, they're just going to watch them and see which of these patients would, you know, would emerge as the optimal for uh, dopaminergic cell therapies. Okay, and from that group, randomly they'd pull out uh, the second arm, which is a transplant arm that they were patients randomly selected from that observational cohort that fit all the criteria and were optimal uh, pa- patients that would presumably benefit the most. Uh, and they did that arm with 11 patients. That arm has now been completed. They're still watching them. Uh, the, they received the graphs periodically over three years from 2015 to 2018, and the final evaluation is going to be in 2021. Now, why am I talking about this? Yeah, there's no results, but I think that you guys should look at this study, and anyone who's even thinking about a clinical translational study should have a hard look at this, because between that and this ethical development of stem cell-based interventions perspective, these two perspectives, both in nature medicine in recent weeks, I think between them, they offer real uh, strong guidance to the stem cell research community, who right now, I think we're ready, we're poised to act. You know, we're moving beyond the preclinical, small, large animal studies, and it won't be long before these things are getting into people. So we really need to get ahead of it and, you know, design these trials rationally and with very important safeguards in mind, uh, but also to try and maximize the chance of success because these op- the optics of these 
early trials are going to be really important for the future of the field. All right, so let's go forth carefully um, with these perspectives in mind. And with that, I'm going to move on to the interview. We've got a young buck who's probably going to, you know, he's going to be the one putting all this stuff into people. So it's, an, it's a nice perspective, and I'm, I'm setting the table for our discussion with the room as the guy who's probably going to be, you know, he's going to be transplanting some PSC-derived cardiomyocytes in no time. But he's going to do it correct in a careful way. All right, before we get to that, did you know that you can model arrhythmias in cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? You can. You can model arrhythmias. I mean, what? Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited HPSC binds can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Modeling arrhythmias, I repeat. Okay? Visit www.stemcell.com cardio-webinar. All right, guys, we have a special treat for you today. On the show, we're interviewing Arun Sharma, Dr. Arun Sharma, who uh, is most recently a postdoc at Harvard University, uh, but was trained, got his PhD in the labs of Joseph and Sean Wu, the Wu-Tang Clan, at Stanford, and uh, did his undergrad at Duke. He's going to talk to us today about his research on the applications of induced pluripotent stem cells for studying cardiovascular biology, modeling diseases, quote-unquote, in a dish, uh, with genome editing technologies like CRISPR, also developing high-throughput platforms for screening drug toxicity and efficacy. Arun does it all. Thanks for being on the show today, Dr. Sharma. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really our pleasure. Why don't you start by just, you know, I, I alluded to it, but why don't you give us a little bit more detail on what your research focuses? Yeah, so my research focuses on the applications of induced pluripotent stem cells, IPSCs, for modeling various forms of cardiac disorders and diseases in a dish. So, you know, as we know, we can mass produce IPSCs from patient samples and then really turn them into whatever cell types we're interested in. You know, by way of my training, I've always focused on heart biology, cardiovascular biology. Um, when I was a grad student in uh, Joe Wu and Sean Wu's lab, I created uh, in vitro disease models for viral myocarditis or a viral infection of the heart. Um, so basically we differentiated iPSCs into cardiomyocytes and then treated them with, uh, with a virus that's known to cause viral myocarditis. So that's one thing that I did. Another thing I did was uh, use these same iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes to um, examine drug cardiotoxicity. So as we know, cancer compounds and various other drugs can cause damage to the heart, and we wanted to develop an in vitro model system that we could use to better understand how this cardiotoxicity arises. Um, so that's uh, those are two couple of projects I worked on. I also focused on some more pure basic cardiac developmental projects, in particular modeling congenital heart disease in a dish, which is actually something I'm still doing here in the, the Seidman lab here at the, the Harvard Medical School. And uh, I've also had the opportunity to actually send some uh, iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes to the International Space Station, which I think was a pretty cool, pretty unique project to, uh, to examine the effect of low gravity on the, uh, the function of the human heart. So... You've so, done yeah. it all. Your research will not be bound by the gravity of Earth, clearly. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think 
this is a good opportunity to talk about how, how your research maybe is, is uh, distinguished from expectations. When you talk to the lay public about, I do, I'm a stem cell researcher, I study heart disease. I think most people, they, you know, reflexively think of repair. They think of regenerative approaches and making new heart, new heart muscle, some kind of patch, etc. And of course, that's what's captured the popular imagination. But I think what, what the really the nitty gritty of uh, stem cell science and developmental biology that you're focused on is really understanding the basic mechanism, how heart works, you know, in, in a healthy uh, state, also in a dysfunctional, unhealthy state. Would you say that your like end game, your goal here is in terms of like treating disease, addressing disease, would you say you're, you're not exactly focused on regeneration, but more about, you know, uh, what is the focus of your treatment options that are going to follow from your work? For sure. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I think there are kind of two areas in the field of, you know, uh, of, of the IPS cardiomyocyte field. There's folks who want to potentially use these cells for cell therapy or regenerative medicine purposes like what you're talking about. And then, you know, kind of what I'm more focused on, which is the in vitro applications. Um, so we're not able to mass produce human heart cells because, you know, it's tough to isolate, uh, cardiomyocytes from patient samples and actually get them to grow in a dish. And these are non-proliferative cells too. So instead we're using these IPS cardiomyocytes as our, our model system. Um, since these, you know, you can scale these cells up really easily, you can, you know, mass produce them. And I guess the end game, kind of what you're talking about is to actually use these cells to find new in vitro, to find new treatments. So if we can use these cells to identify new compounds that might be able to regulate cardiac function, say make the cardiomyocytes beat harder or influence myosin function or alter ion channel function, you know, we can use this as an in vitro system to identify those new drugs. So that's sort of the end point that we're going towards. Yeah, I li I'm like, I mean, this is a great chance, I think, for me to talk to, I'm always talking to these people who are, you know, a big deal, you know, August figures in the field, all much older than me. You're a young guy, a young buck. I got about, <laughs> I got about 10 years on you. And, and it's a good opportunity for me to see kind of like, what's this next wave of, uh, of the science education, like what your experience was. Um, so, I mean... Let's start with the, the science, you know. As I was talking about, the reflexive idea is regenerative medicine, the toolkit, but you're in the next, I think, generation of stem cell trainees who are seeing all the other non-obvious applications, but probably more like robust and practical applications. How do you see stem cells entering the market? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even over the course of, my career, you know, which has been over the last 10 years in stem cell biology, um, you've really seen an explosion towards, you know, bringing these, uh, you know, stem cells and stem cell derived products to not only the clinic, but also to tr other translational applications, such as for in vitro, you know, disease modeling for drug discovery, that sort of thing. So not only are, you know, is like everybody able to use iPSCs and iPSC derived cells for, you know, basic science purposes, but a ton of startups, a ton of, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies are starting to integrate these cells into their pipeline for drug discovery. 
And I think that was always kind of the goal in the field, but it's really cool to actually see that happen, um, even in the course of my own like very short career. So it's it's really exciting. Yeah, in my time, it was about you know, how are we going to get these cells? And in your time, I guess that's been addressed. Uh, in my time, it was all these ethical conundrums of like chimera. I know you actually had a, a little uh, paper you wrote about the ethics of uh, chimerism, I think it was. Um, so you have an insight into that. But now, I mean, it's, we've kind of passed a lot of that by. We're doing chimera, human pig, human mouse. It's kind of, you know, the, the, the uproar has kind of settled over that. We have the IPS cells, obviously. What is the thing nowadays? It's the real, I guess, the major obstacle that you've noted in, in coming up. What are the, the risks? What are the people, you know, bioethicists getting really upset about? The societal implications? Talk about the landscape. Um, that, that you've seen in, in your, um, you know, in coming up? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've, I've got an interest in, you know, better understanding the, the bioethics of, you know, stem cell biology as well, since it's, uh, it's a, such a translationally relevant field. And inevitably, you do have these, you know, certain concerns, bioethical concerns come up. Back in the day, it was, you know, with human embryonic stem cells. But now, as a field, we've shifted more towards iPSC technology. So some of those concerns have been alleviated. Um, but there's, you know, definitely an interest in still using stem cells to uh, generate, for example, novel organs, new organs in uh, not only in vitro, but also potentially through human animal chimeras, for example. I know there are some people across the world, such as, you know, folks at Stanford. I can mention Hiromitsu Nakauchi, for example. He's always been interested in generating um, uh, humanized organs in, in, uh, in animal models. So he actually generated, I believe, a, a rat-mouse-pancreatic um, hybrid, for example. So that's, you know, one long-term application of the regenerative medicines field is like, you know, what if we can mass produce human organs in, say, pigs, for example? You know, there are a ton of bioethical concerns that we have to consider. Um, but in the end, if the goal, if the ultimate goal is to actually have an unlimited supply of human organs for transplantation purposes, then at least in, in my opinion, I think that's something that we should strive for. Um, there are absolutely a lot of, you know, uh, regulatory hurdles and considerations that we have to think about. Um, but if, if we can, you know, eliminate the black market for human organs, for example, by having an unlimited supply of organs on demand, I think that's, that's a really powerful thing. So theoretically, yeah, but you really think that we're going to get to a point, would you take a pig, a heart grown in a pig or something that's a little bit pig, a little bit human? I, I'm just, I forget about you directly. I mean, honestly, I would if I was on death's door, but I guess, would we ever be allowed to? This is what I'm wrestling with now as I become this old cynical geezer, is that, you know, there's these ideas that I talked about with bright eyes in my 20s and 30s, and now I just see how the kind of, the conservatism of, you know, the, the justified conservatism of the FDA and all that is maybe going to choke these out, or there's going to be other options that are, you know, more practical in the near term. Let's say that there's never any chimera organs. Would that, you know, would you judge based on that, that, you know, that, there's, that we should stop doing the research if it doesn't have a purely therapeutic endpoint? No, absolutely not. I think, you know, there's so much 
that you can just learn from the pure basic science, from the pure developmental biology that, you know, even, even if you're not able to make a human organ in a pig or in a dish entirely, there's, you can still learn from those fundamental mechanisms of, you know, human development. Uh, and that could potentially inform, say, in, in the in the diseases that I study, congenital heart disease, like mm. how human heart defects arise. You know, that's that's uh, something that is um, prevalent in about one in a hundred newborn, uh, you know, births. And it's something that we still don't entirely understand. Um, so if even from that perspective, you know, just from the basic science perspective, it's really important to learn these fundamental uh, developmental principles. And, you know, it's not to say that the field has entirely shifted towards those translational applications. I think there's so much that we still need to learn at the pure uh, basic science level, too. Hmm. All right. So, you know, I'm fascinated by your trajectory as a young scientist. Uh, and I just want to know what your path was like. And I, I know a little bit about it doing my research. I, I read this article. Uh, about you when you were young, when you were still in college, you went to Duke, go Devils. Go um, Devils. <laughs> the, uh, there was an article where you were talking about your path, and w the point of the article was that you weren't pre-med, you were pre-research. And I, that stuck with me, because I, similarly, when I was young, everyone asked what, what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I'd say, and it was, I mean, this is when I was, I was like five, six years old, so I don't know where it came from, I'd say, I want to be a genetic engineer. And just because of the momentum of saying that enough times, I just went into science and I never even considered the medical field. What was it for you that, you know, because I mean, as you probably know as well as I do, every single intern, young person who ever works in my lab wants to be a doctor. They're going, they're doing the lab experience as an entree to, you know, beef up their college or med school application. What was it about your experience that locked you into research so early? Yeah, so, no, I mean, I think you're totally right. Um, I think there is, especially at a place like Duke, for example, where there's an incredible medical school, there's an incredible, you know, medical institution there, there's uh, a natural vibe and a push towards, you know, kids entering uh, the medical training side of things, you know, going and becoming clinicians, going to medical school. But for me, it was, um, you know, it, it's actually, I've been really fortunate. I've been really fortunate in that I was raised in an environment where science was always heavily valued. Um, so my, my father is a, um, he's a professor at a small school in, uh, in a small town in Alabama. Um, and so from a young age, he's kind of, you know, instilled in me the, the excitement that, you know, that science can have and, you know, just the, uh, the ability that, you know, you have the ability to do something that no one else has done before in research. And that's always something that really stuck with me. Um, you know, you're inventing knowledge, you're, you're pushing the frontier. Um, maybe that was kind of naive of me to think about back in the day, but, you know, that's something that's always excited me and stuck with me. Uh, even to this day. And so when I was in college, I, I I knew I really wanted to do research. It's just something that I've always had a passion for, you know, pushing the frontier of knowledge. And I just remember sitting in one of my, you know, uh, dev bio classes back in the day and learning about these things called um, induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs. And I was like, holy cow, you can, you're telling me that you can make a beating heart cell in a dish from a small sample of your own skin or blood, that's 
that's science fiction. You know, that's that's incredible. So um, that I just decided kind of then and there that I just wanted to learn everything there was to know about about IPSCs. And, you know, um, and so that's why I actually decided to go to 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 go to grad school. Uh, to study stem cell biology is because I, I knew that this was such a powerful technology and I wanted to learn everything there was to know about it. So it sounds like you had a, a environment that was able to, you know, enabled you to cu- cultivate your interests, but also there was this kind of uh, nidus of inspiration in that learning about the IPSs. Do you think that generally, I mean, is this a, your specific experience or would you gauge that science is more broadly competing with these traditional law med school paths in the eyes of our like you know brilliant youth I, i've always lamented the fact that the the smartest amongst our youth kind of get kind of you know put on this path to become a doctor or a lawyer just because it's like the pinnacle of achievement without ever really exploring their interests, but I think in this generation, it's like the me generation. Do you think that that's reflected in our, our youth, like really contemplating a career in science? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it's a combination of things. I think one, definitely there is that idea of um, perhaps more people from a younger age are exposed to the idea of what being a doctor is all about, right? Like you can, even if you don't have doctors in your family, you're able to, to go to the doctor's office and actually kind of experience firsthand what what that's all about and be like, hey, you know, I wanna, I like helping people and I like, you know, taking care of people. And so that's kind of a natural push for a young person to go into that. And I'm not saying there's, you know, anything wrong with that. You know, my wife's a clinician. Um, but I, I think on the research side of things, it's, um, it's not always, immediately clear to especially you know younger kids uh, about like you know what is what do you do as a scientist like what day to day what is a what is a, a scientist's job you know um and for a lot of people it's not until they actually go to college and have the opportunity to actually do research in a real lab um that you know that becomes more clear and actually when i was an undergrad i i founded an organization to actually help um push that along. I founded this thing called the the Duke Undergraduate Research Society, um, specifically for that purpose, to help kids who have never had exposure to scientific research actually get a feel for what lab research is like. So we helped match them into research labs and, you know, match them with mentors who are postdocs and grad students uh, who actually have their their shared interests and actually just help them get an exposure to, you know, day-to-day life in, in uh in the lab and what that's all about. Um, so, you know, I think, um, I think there's plenty of people who have passions in, in both areas, right? You know, the MD PhD track is still, you know, an incredibly important, uh, you know, track if you have a passion on the clinical side, as well as on the research side. Um, but for me, it was always, I, I, I knew from a young age, like I love the science and I tried the, the clinical side of things. Uh, it was never my forte. Uh, I felt the most comfortable in a lab environment and, you know, everybody's different and that's, that's just kind of how I am. Hmm. Yeah. You talked about, uh, the visibility of a thing, right? And, and I think you, you nailed it. Like you, you want to be a doctor because you know what a doctor is. And someone says, yeah, you want to be a scientist. You, you, you think you know, and then you go do science. And you're like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. But um, the visibility is maybe kind of breaking down those, those boundaries. It's a different landscape now with like 
social and and generally you know science communication is becoming more prevalent i know you you were very active online and social and twitter so you also have an insight into that how do you think that generally this this internet and social and science communication how has that influenced just the general practice of basic science do you think yeah um i think it's something that's become really popular especially in the last five years um for me you know it's you know as just a natural part of my generation i grew up with social media right it's kind of in the fabric of who i am i've been on facebook for the last like i don't know 15 years now you know for for better or for worse right uh started with like myspace and all that back in the day but I, I don't know. I, I just think from the academic perspective, it can be extremely powerful, very, very powerful if you use it the right way. If you use it the wrong way, yeah, it can really hurt you, you know, but, hmm. you know, um, as you you know, you can probably imagine. But I mean, like, just to give an example, I've seen PIs who I would have never imagined be on Twitter, you know, like these really senior level PIs who have uh, joined onto Twitter just because it's an incredible medium for, you know, just having natural conversations with people. And also the fact is, you know, all these, you know, publications and papers are immediately released on, on Twitter these days, you know, like if you want, um, if you want to stay on top of the most recent literature, you can just go on your Twitter feed and be like, Hey, you know, this is something that just came out in my field. And in fact, it's something that I do, you know, like after I wake up in the morning and like, you know, brush my teeth and all that stuff. I go on Twitter, but you know, that's probably a byproduct of me being a millennial for sure. But, um, but yeah, it's, I think if you use it right, it can be an incredibly very, very powerful resource. So I'm not one who uses it right or wrong. I just don't use it. I'm not good. I should, I, I, I recognize that. I'm just, you know, I've gotten to that age where I don't do new things because new things are scary. Um, <laughs> but, Come on now. I mean, you can give it a shot. It's not that tough. <laughs> All right. You, you know? bring me in a room. We'll tweet together. I'll tweet no, to I, you. I can, I can set up your account for you. How about that? <laughs> right, <deal. laughs> we'll but make it work. The, uh, the idea there, I think, um, it dovetails. I could see why these senior PAs are doing it because this is also just speaking strictly scientifically. This notion now, instead of the you know, solitary scientist, now it's this whole multidisciplinary and you have to cross the aisle and you have to, you know, engage, right? And while it used to be kind of negative, like jack of all trades, master of non dilettante idea, I think now like that's prized. You know, the new thing is you need to be able to shift gears and, and reinvent yourself constantly. But there's this other thing, and this is me asking because I don't know. In in like the social social, uh, non science social, there's this idea of like your friends online are just, they're virtual. They're just, you know, ghosts. And you're, they're, they're, the, 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 all the relations you have online are taking away from your, your in the real world, you know, interactions. Is there any, anything to that with science that there's, a, there's an idea of collaboration online, like with tweet, tweeting or whatever it is, um, whereas, but it doesn't ever, like, come through i guess the question is is it a place where you're just communicating like hey this paper just came out ideas or do you actually seed real collaborations where you're you're tweeting with somebody and then you know suddenly they're like co-authors on on a story that you're trying to tell 
Oh yeah. No, in fact, you know, even from my own experiences, like I've been able to, to set up collaborations and I've actually been in, in one circumstance invited to a meeting based on my interactions with somebody on Twitter. Um, and not only that, you know, once you go to these meetings, it's, it's a nice icebreaker. You can be like, Hey, you know, I, I follow you on Twitter or, you know, even people mm. have come up to me and be like, Hey, I really enjoyed that tweet. You know, it was, it was really informative. So it's, um, it's not, I think it's something that can be translated to the real world too. Um, again, if you use it in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not surprised to hear people coming up to you, Starboy that you are, talking about your amazing tweets. I'm just going to run down a, a, a short, I think, um, a window into your trajectory here. Forbes 30 under 30. Uh, you're the stat wunderkind. Uh, amongst others, a lot of articles written about you. You are a, a, a star in the making. What's the secret? I mean, what, what, when I look at your CV, what I see is that it's like every single opportunity for you know success that you you have achieved it um, up to this point. Uh, is it just a matter of going after every single thing? Do you sleep? I mean, we know you're smart. A lot of people are smart, but what's the secret? to getting, to transcending, you know, to getting to that next level of success at your level, you know? We talk about it with scientists and they'll say, yeah, I attribute a little bit to luck, but, and of course, there's some, something to do with luck, but, but be honest with me for a second. Put down your modesty. Tell me, how do you, how do you stay, how do you stay so active? Well, you know, I, I think it's, for one, I, I just I feel like there's still so much I have to do, and it's like it's it's a thing of passion for me. You know, this is this is just what I love to do. I love just doing the science, and not only doing the science, but talking about the science to people like you and other people, even in you know non-scientific uh, audiences as well. It's um, I mean, sure, you over time you become a little bit more jaded and cynical about the whole process because you kind of you see how the sausage is made, you know, mm. but. But at the bottom line, it's, you know, it's just, I really enjoy what I do. Even when I go into lab every day and I see beating human heart cells in a dish, that still excites me. And I've been looking at those guys for about 10 years now. Um, I mean, hopefully that's something that sticks with me, you know, for, for the rest of my career. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's a combination of passion and, you know, with me, um, I feel like if you're passionate about something, you naturally give 110% to it. And that's always been my approach. So, yeah, talking about your science a bit, um, it's, it's basic, but it also, I think, has this, as you would expect as someone in your generation of scientists, it has a lot of the tech element. You know, you, of course, you sent cells to space, for Christ's sake. Um, but, you know, there's also like software. You have this SARC track where you're monitoring the cells in the dish using software. There's, of course, the whole drug screening and toxicology st type stuff. It seems like a overlaying a, a much more like biotech onto the, onto the basic science. Do you, um, how do you envision your research career moving forward? I mean, I know I, I, I expect that you're probably going to maintain... Uh, at least one foot in academic science, you know, the traditional tenure track. But I, I would expect in your generation that there's a lot more of an impetus for commercialization and also 
broad, like, you know, software, for instance, you know, space. Um, I love, not everybody can go to space, but it's, it's like, like hyper multidisciplinary. We're talking about fields that are, you know, very distantly related. Is that, you know, going to be the, the template for the rest of your career? Yeah, I would love, you know, to integrate all all those things, you know, not only the pure basic science, but also uh, potentially the the engineering side of things. Um, because, you know, I think at this point in, you know, in biomedical research, we're, we're sort of in a golden age, right? We're able to, to integrate all these different technologies and areas of study, like, you know, big data, biomedical engineering, um, computer science, uh, all these kind of things and able to we're able to use that information to actually make us uh, you know give us the most informed um, re research directions right and we can uh, that that's something that hasn't always been available to us right but in this day and age you know that's something that I'm very fortunate that I can take advantage of and who knows what's going to happen like down the road you know especially when it comes to say like you know genome editing or genome engineering or genomics in general where you have these massive you know uh, computational pipelines that are starting to pop up that are helping to parse apart and tease apart what this genomic information actually means, right? Um, and, you know, even 10 years ago, that's something that wasn't possible. Uh, in the example of genomics, the cost of genome sequencing has just, you know, dramatically dropped even ever since in I, I was in high school, right? So you're down to under a thousand bucks uh, for a single genome. So it's it's a combination of things, you know, and it's something that I definitely want to, you know, keep integrated into to my own research career and going into the future. So let's just talk briefly because I'm 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 really been sweating you very hard in your whole life. But let's talk about your science, the the space thing. I mean, we got to talk about space. What's the bottom line there? You send our cardiomyocytes up to IPS drive, our, our ES drive cardiomyocytes up to space. What's the expectation what's the the relevance and and what did you find yeah for sure so um we you know down the road we want to spend more and more time in you know deep space as we go towards like missions to mars and and beyond right and there's still a lot we don't understand about how the human body actually changes in in low gravity in microgravity if we're going to Mars, it's going to be, you know, a few months. That's, uh, you know, the, the trip there and trip back, right? Um, and we know since, you know, astronauts have been on the International Space Station for, for months and even years now, um, that the heart in particular does change. It does change in orbit. So it changes its shape and its size and loses some of its mass. Since it's, it's a muscle, right? And, you know, muscles tend to atrophy. Uh, if you don't use them as much and that's what happens in orbit you know astronaut muscles deteriorate a little bit their bones deteriorate a little bit um, and that's part of the reason that astronauts actually have to do exercises on orbit for hours every single day so we have an idea of what happens at the the tissue and the organ level but less of an understanding of what actually happens at the cell and molecular level and so that's what we were hoping to to do we uh, derived ipsc derived cardiomyocytes from three different individuals and so we can have, you know, different genetic backgrounds with which we can study the effects of low gravity on the human heart. And then, you know, collaborated with the team of uh, mechanical engineers at the University of Colorado to actually 
devise custom six-well plates, you know, fully enclosed six-well plates in which we could actually grow these iPSC-derived cardiomyocytes. Since, of course, if you use a standard six-well plate on the International Space Station, the media is going to go everywhere, which is obviously not something you want. Um, and so we sent these samples um, to the station where they were grown for a period of uh, one month. And our perhaps the, the greatest resource and the greatest help that we had with this entire experiment uh, was the fact that we, um, uh, the astronaut who was working with us was Dr. Kate Rubens. And Dr. Kate Rubens is not only an astronaut, but she's also a biologist. She was a virologist in her former career. She was a PI at the, uh, the Whitehead Institute, I believe. Um, and so she was able to speak our language, you know, she's done cell culture before she's done stem cell culture before. So when it came to media exchanges and when it came to, uh, contamination issues, you know, she knew exactly what we had to, to keep an eye out for. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were extremely fortunate to be able to work with her. Um, and so what Dr. Rubens was able to do was basically, um, examine how these change, these cells were changing in terms of their morphology, in terms of their beating rates. And she also preserved some samples for RNA sequencing downstream when the, the samples came back, uh, back to earth. And so we, uh, we did this analysis in parallel with a set of ground side controls that were being cultured in our lab at Stanford. And, uh, once the experiment was done after a period of about one month, we uh, saw that the cells actually changed in terms of their contractility. So they were able to elicit a, a, a lower level of force output on the level of the single cell. And this is actually something that reverted back to normal uh, when the cells actually returned back to the planet. And in some ways, this kind of parallels what happens at the organ level too. The uh, the astronauts, uh, their muscles tend to deteriorate a bit. Their their hearts tend to change shape and size a bit. But for the most part, um, these changes revert back to normal when the astronauts return back to the planet. And we're seeing something similar happen at the cellular level as well. So it's kind of a cool parallel. Um, and the, the other thing we saw was that there was actually an upregulation in certain mitochondrial um, metabolism-related genes, uh, perhaps to, um, to compensate for this reduced uh, cardiac output at the cellular level. Uh, these cells are perhaps you know, upregulating their mitochondrial uh, enzymes to, to compensate for that. But once again, those, you know, even the gene expression changes reverted back to normal when the cells return to the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so ultimately, we're able to see that, you know, um, the cardiomyocytes and the cells in the body are very responsive to the environments that in which they're placed, even in environments such as microgravity. They're able to change their function in terms of their contractility, but also their gene expression within days of being placed on this unique environment. Um, but once again, in response to their environment, once they return back to the planet, they can revert back to normal. Um, so it kind of tells us something about the plasticity of various cell types in, in the human body. Wow, yeah, molecular plasticity, it sounds like. I remember I heard this story about the twins. I mean, everybody knows about these twins where the brother was, they're both astronauts, one stayed down, the other went up. And I was surprised how banged up the, the space brother was. I mean, it's tough being in space. I don't know how long he was there, but it was approaching, I thought, a year. So if your colleague from the Whitehead was a PI and then went to space, maybe you could too, Arun. you have any interest in going up to space in, in, in the future? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's always been kind of a dream, right? So I, I grew up in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which is Rocket City, USA. It's the home of Space Camp. And, you know, I've always wanted to 
kind of be in the be an astronaut in the back of my mind. Um, who knows? You know, maybe I'll give it a shot, but my wife might kill me. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, being a kid from Huntsville, that's always kind of the dream. Well, you are on a meteoric trajectory, my friend. So I don't know if the Earth can bind you anymore. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot because as a young man, you don't have as much at stake. <laughs> as a betting man, though, would you? What do you think is going to be the first thing that comes into into people? You know, widespread use from from the stem cell field as a therapy. Yeah, I think as a therapy. I think it's probably going to be something on the the neuro side of things. Um, I'm not as knowledgeable about that. Perhaps something like you know, uh, generating cells that are be be able to um, generate myelin, for example, like myelin generating cells. That that could be a a possibility. I know there's actually quite a few like various forms of early stage clinical trials that are happening. Um, you know, when it comes to cell therapy and the, the neurological side of things, at least on the cardiac side of things, I think there's a huge push towards generating iPS-derived cardiomyocyte patches, for example, patches that might be able to restore cardiac function after an event such as a heart attack. Um, I know folks like, you know, Chuck Murray up in University of Washington are working on this, uh, Ninad Bursak at Duke. Um, so I, I think we're getting there. I think we are, we're close. You know, a lot of these technologies are starting to go into early stage clinical trials. Um, I think, you know, inevitably there's going to be that question of, you know, are these cells mature enough for translational purposes, right? Um, cause that's always been the caveat in the IPS derived, whatever field, right? These are immature cells, you know, in the cardiomyocyte, you know, they're not, they're not adult myocytes. They're not able to elicit force output on the level of the adult myocyte. And so the question is, is that good enough uh, for translational purposes? Um, and at least in the cardiac field, there's a huge push towards trying to mature these cells as much as possible, trying to get their electrophysiological properties on par with adult cells, trying to make them functionally on par with adult cells. Um, but I guess, you know, it, from the perspective of say, like from the patient, you know, if, if this is, if this is, you know, the best option available, or if this is a option available, is this something that you would be willing to turn down? Right. Mm. Um, and so I guess it's something that we have to consider. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of, you know, neurodegenerative conditions, there's no other options, right? So if it's a choice between nothing at all and something experimental, I could see m myself making that choice readily. So we're thinking neuro. You heard it from Dr. Sharma. He's thinking neurological treatment. I put you on the spot, my friend, and you 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 occupied the spot. Now you're there. But uh, caveat, I'm I'm not a neuro guy, but you know, <laughs> I'm I'm a cardiac guy, I'm a heart guy. But Don't worry. So I can say neuro. Don't worry, we're not gonna hold you to it. Uh, right. it's brave of you to venture a guess. Most people would have a non answer, so I respect you for taking a position. Um and now we're going to transition into the post-science interview, science peripheral questions. Are you ready? We have the first one is a pretty basic question. You're probably still making heroes. Uh, who are, are your scientific, who is or who are your scientific hero or heroes? Yeah, well, you know, I guess first and foremost, I would have to say my dad, because he's the guy who actually instilled in me the passion for science in the first place. You know, um, he's he's even to this day, he's got that 
passion for not only doing the science on a daily basis, but also just, uh, you know, talking about science to students and, you know, uh, people who are not necessarily as fortunate as we are when it comes to being able to access uh, science readily. So he loves to go out into the community and talk about science to uh, underprivileged kids. Um, and so for me, from a very personal level, he has always been my scientific hero. That's a great answer. Pops. Yeah. Um, next, we have a series of fill-in-the-blanks. Uh, the first of those is... The biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? I would say the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is the intersection of stem cell biology with genome editing. Mm. I would say just because, you know, we're able to create custom stem cells in any sort of way that we can think of, you know, whether it's fluorescent cell lines, whether it's, you know, custom patient specific cell lines or isogenic cell lines, it's CRISPR Cas9 and, you know, even tail and before it has been such a powerful technology to really take stem cell biology to the next level when it comes to disease modeling, when it comes to translational purposes, um, that I would say, you know, genome editing has been the big thing for stem cell biology. Yeah, for sure. It's been a big thing for everything, as we uh, are hearing with these stories with John K. Hay and China and all that. But yes, specifically with stem cells, as you say, because, you know, you have one amazing tool and then you add another amazing tool and they synergize to do with these whole, the CRISPR. I mean, we were talking to Tanisha Dorea in the last uh, episode or two ago, and she was telling us about, the, you know, doing these CRISPR whole genome screens to add the whole dimension of functionality in, in uh, doing these unbiased screens of, of uh, ESL or other cell types. So, agree, correct. That answer is correct. The second, yes. I would never have gotten to this point in my career without. Without my mentors, you know, that's, I think that's the case for all of us, right? If we've achieved success, it's because of being in an incredible environment with supportive people. You know, you never do this by yourself. You never achieve success by yourself. Um, so definitely my mentors. Standing on the shoulders. Uh, third, when it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. When it comes to mouse work, I'm pretty much useless. Oh, I no. Should not, I should not be saying this probably, but yeah, when it comes to mouse work, I'm pretty much useless. I've always kind of been an in vitro kind of guy, in vitro IPS guy, and uh, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> <laughs> no, say it, bro. Skip mouse. Go right to human. Who needs the mice? We're not trying to fix yes. mice. My reviewers might need. Me, I'm just <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, sure, of course. Well, maybe go up, go up to pigs. Everyone's doing pigs nowadays, so you can yeah. cut cut out the uh, the lower vertebrates. Um, last, if the lab catches fire and I have one chance to grab a thing on my way out, that would be my liquid nitrogen tank. Mm. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got to grab my liquid nitrogen tank. I mean, I got all my years and years of IPS cells in there. You know, I can't get rid of those. You yeah. know, that's those are those are my precious uh, my your babies. Little, right? Your little baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that no. is the one thing that's not replaceable. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, a lot of people would say the laptop. I always think my laptop, but nowadays it seems pretty dumb 
the way everything's backed up. But uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta keep those cells on ice. I ruined another correct answer. You're four for four, bro. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> you nailed it. Uh, you're you're on a, a great track, Rune. It was so um, great to talk to a, a young scientist. And I mean, I, I should put that in quotes because you're, you know, high achieving as many older, uh, mature scientists. So you're certainly not young in your efforts, but you, you have a pretty small number uh, for your age there. So you're representing young scientists out there. Thanks for being on the show today. We had a great chat. Um, and we'll have to have you back on again, you know, when you make the Forbes 40 under 40, I guess. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, guys, that brings us to the very end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach us on Twitter, as always, at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com. There you can give us feedback. You can suggest guests. There's a lot of good info on there to check out. Guys, this past week, I was at the mecca of stem cells, and I have to say, I believe I have found faith in the future of stem cells. We're coming, coming at them with you know, a, new, a new paradigm, I think, of clinical translational medicine. It's all starting with the organoids. I can't wait to see what we're going to do next. We're going to have some of the uh, conversations we had in between sessions. We're going to post those in the off weeks so you can get a little bit of a, a glimpse into what we saw and heard at the meeting this year. But I got to tell you, it is exciting times. And we got all the architects of that excitement on the show in episodes past, present, future. We're right ringside, guys. And uh, we've got the ear of some of the most innovative researchers out there. And you can hear what they have to say on this show. Guys, can't wait to see. See you in a couple weeks or before. 